Our text from Mark's Gospel is uh, again Mark 15.32. That is the point from which we will be considering another portion of the uh, account of Christ's crucifixion in another gospel. And so, again, I direct you back to Mark 15, verse 32, and then we will consider the portion that uh, is before us today from John's Gospel. Mark 15, 32 says, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe, and they that were crucified with him, reviled him. And then, if you will turn with me to John chapter 19. We'll be looking today at the third statement of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. (coughs) Most of us have likely heard the expression said of a professing Christian that he is so heavenly minded that he is no earthly good. The thought communicated here is that it is not good for a Christian to walk so with his head in the clouds, to walk around with heaven so much on his mind that he neglects his earthly duties and responsibilities. Of course, the opposite extreme is equally dangerous as well. Living the Christian life here upon the earth in such a way that one is totally caught up with earthly affairs to such a degree that heaven is hardly ever upon his mind. Dear ones, If we are to be faithful as Christians, we must live in such a way that we are connected both to heaven, but at the same time to earth. A Christian, dear ones, is a citizen of heaven, according to Philippians 3.20. And yet he is a pilgrim and sojourner upon the earth, according to 1 Peter 2.11. Heaven is the the Christian's home indeed, but he must first travel for a few years in this world before reaching his heavenly home. 
until God calls us home at the time of our death. The Christian is called to live as light in this world, shining forth the righteousness and truth of Jesus Christ. The Christian is not to take his eye off of heaven, but at the same time he is to keep an eye upon earth. For he has responsibilities and duties of love and obedience which he owes to God and to his fellow man. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, as he hung upon that cruel cross, had an eye to heaven, but also had an eye to earth as well. For the Lord not only promised to one of the criminals between whom he hung that he would receive everlasting life, that he would remember him when he went himself into paradise, but he also delivered his beloved mother, into the care of his beloved disciple, John. The Lord Jesus wanted to be in the presence of his heavenly Father, no doubt, but he also wanted to provide for his earthly mother. Even in the midst of suffering for sinners chosen from eternity, he cared for the earthly lot of his mother. The Pharisees, on the other hand, you'll recall, looked for ways to avoid providing for their parents by saying the money they possessed was Corban or consecrated to God and therefore couldn't be used to care for the needs of their parents. You see, this was just a, uh, a manipulation, uh, a hypocritical way in which they would not have to carry out the duties and responsibilities that they owed to their parents. Dear ones, Jesus said, the world would know we are Christians by our love for one another. That love begins in the home and manifests itself in the church and then shows forth and declares itself to the world in caring for our neighbor. Let us walk today in the footsteps of our Savior, in his care for his mother. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. First of all, the mother who stood with Christ in John 19.25. And secondly, the Christ who stood with his mother in John 19.26 and 27. <clears throat> First of all, then, the mother who stood with Christ. Look with me at John 19.25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. <coughs> Our text begins with a group of women standing near the cross as Christ is crucified. Some debate has centered around how many women are actually mentioned here in John 19.25. Are there three women that are mentioned? 
First of all, Mary, the mother of Christ. Second, Mary's sister, whose name is also Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And thirdly, Mary Magdalene. Or are there four women that are mentioned here? Mary, the mother of Christ, first. Second, Mary's sister, who is not named here. Third, Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And fourth, Mary Magdalene. Now, there is no debate as to the presence of Mary, the mother of Christ, or to the presence of Mary Magdalene. The debate revolves around whether the reference to Mary's sister and Mary, the wife of Cleophas, are the same woman or two different women. Now, although this is not a monumental issue in and of itself, let me give you my thoughts briefly. I incline to think that we have mentioned here in John 19.25 four different women. And I think so for the following reasons. First, it is unlikely that there would be two daughters called Mary in the same family. Thus, it is more likely to see Mary's sister as unnamed rather than to see her identified with Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And second, when we compare this list of women here in John 19.25 with the list of women mentioned in Mark 15.40, we see that there are three other women besides Mary, the mother of Christ, that are mentioned as well in Mark 15.40, who were present at the cross. In Mark 15.40, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is omitted. But there are three distinct women who are mentioned there. Those women who are mentioned in Mark 15:40 are Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, who in John 19:25, I would suggest, is called Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And thirdly, in Mark 15:40, there is identified a woman by the name of Salome who in John 19.25 is most likely the unnamed sister of Mary, the mother of Christ. These devoted women, dear ones, have come to stand with Christ in his death. So what is so significant about that? Well, it's worth noting that all of the disciples of Christ, except the Apostle John, have fled in fear and are in hiding somewhere because they do not want to be identified with Christ over fear for their lives. Even Peter, who so boldly proclaimed that he would never deny the Lord and would not abandon nor desert him, is nowhere to be found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Having already denied Christ three times, Peter is likely dealing with his cowardly failure to stand up for Christ in front of servants who asked whether he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in John 19.25, we find women of faith and women of courage who will not abandon the Lord at a time when he was identified as shameful And as a cursed criminal, hanging between two murderers and thieves, and mocked and ridiculed by those who were present. 
these women will not abandon the Lord Jesus Christ at this time. What a testimony of courage is evidenced in these godly women who had come to know Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of sinners. He had been there for them in their time of need, and they were not about to abandon him in his time of need. Mary Magdalene, we learn, had been delivered by Christ from seven evil spirits that had tormented her, according to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. There we read these words. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. Here were women that are mentioned in Luke chapter 8, and others who are not mentioned who so believed in the Lord Jesus Christ that they went with him in various places or at least provided for his material needs. They provided for the food, the clothing, the shelter that the Lord Jesus had need of. Here were women committed to the Lord, and they indicated it by giving of their own substance to provide for him. Dear ones, these four women, I would suggest to you, had counted the cost of following Christ, and they were willing to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how many opposed him, no matter how many hated him, no matter how many ridiculed him. How many times has your courage and mine run and hidden when the majority have made fun of Christianity or of Christ or ridiculed some truth revealed by God in His Word? How many times have we preferred rather to blend in with the accusers of Christ and of His truth rather than standing up for Christ when it might mean our own persecution. Dear ones, it is not only men who are called to be courageous. It is all who call upon the name of the Lord who are called to be courageous and standing for Christ. Men and women and even children. Beloved, Christ was not ashamed to be accounted a cursed criminal in suffering for the sins of unworthy sinners who deserve to perish in hell for all eternity. May we not be ashamed to stand for him even when peer pressure would push us and conform us to the ways of the world. One of the greatest evidences of our faith in Jesus Christ is our willingness to suffer shame for Jesus Christ and his truth. 
whatever the cost to us may be. May God grant us the faith and courage of these godly women who stood with Christ in his hour of shame. But there is one woman present that I would say something further about. It's Christ's own mother, Mary. Despite the blasphemous extremes to which the Romish church has gone in attributing divine qualities and titles and offices to Mary, we ought not to underestimate what a remarkable woman the mother of Christ really was. She was the chosen vessel to carry in her womb the very Son of God. Being a young virgin, she yet rejoiced in being impregnated by the Holy Spirit, even though she would be falsely accused of unfaithfulness to her betrothed husband, Joseph. And her child would henceforth be known by many and be called by many an illegitimate child due to this fact. From the very birth of Christ, it was foretold to Mary by the prophet Simeon that her sinless child, who was the Savior of the world, would fall by suffering at the hands of sinners. And it would be like a sword piercing into her very soul as she witnessed his suffering, according to Luke 2.35. Mary had never needed to rebuke or discipline her sinless son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in her sin, she may have rebuked, and in her sin, she may have corrected, in her sin, she may have even disciplined the Lord Jesus Christ. But she didn't need to because here was one. Here was a child who never disobeyed his parents. Here was a child who never showed disrespect to them in the way that he spoke. He never became sinfully angry with one of his siblings. There must have been, dear ones, a, a remarkable attachment of this mother to this sinless child as he grew and matured. She must have wandered many times over and over with her husband, Joseph, all that her child would accomplish in his life. Now as we come to our text today, we see the mother of our Lord there with other women at the cross of Christ looking up in amazement as her son suffered for her own sin and condemnation as well as for the sins of all sinners chosen by God from the foundation of the world. We have not heard anything, dear ones, about Mary during the trials of Christ, during the mockery of Christ, during the beating of Christ, but now as he hangs from the cross, the mother of the Lord comes into view. The Roman Catholic Church has blasphemously deified Mary by teaching that she was born without sin, that she herself never committed any personal sin, that she remained a perpetual virgin all of her life, 
that she was raised bodily after her death and ascended bodily to heaven like her son in order to become the queen of heaven and that she intercedes on behalf of all those around the world with the divine knowledge of all who call upon her. It's stated in the book entitled The Catechism of the Catholic Church the following. This motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside, notice, this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. Pages 274 through 275 of that catechism. Rome unabashedly gives to Mary the very offices of the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, according to 1 Timothy 2.5. The blasphemous elevation of Mary to the level of mediatrix, that is a female mediator, implies the insufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and mediation. For his elect. But dear ones, wasn't that the very purpose of Christ's death? To satisfy the infinite and everlasting wrath of God against guilty sinners? If Christ perfectly fulfilled the will of God in reconciling God to man and man to God, what need is there of a mediatrix? Furthermore, where in all of the word of God is Mary ever said to have been sinless, to have been a perpetual virgin, to have been raised bodily from the dead and to have ascended bodily into heaven and to have been called the queen of heaven, advocate or mediatrix? These are all figments of Rome's idolatrous imagination. Now, the tendency very often among Protestants, upon hearing such lies spoken about Mary, is to swing to the opposite extreme and to de-emphasize Mary to such an extent that she loses any uniqueness she had as the mother of our Savior. That, I would submit to you, we do not want to do. We do not want to hide her in the group of women who attended the crucifixion of Christ and say that there was no uniqueness at all to her sorrow or to her grief. We see in her presence at the cross, dear ones, the fulfillment of that prophesied suffering by Simeon. That suffering that is unique to her as a mother. Yes, there was, I would submit to you, a uniqueness 
too, Mary's grief as she looked upon her son hanging from the cross in torment and in agony. We would, in effect, remove her from the realm of being human if Mary's heart was not broken in a way different from that of other women who looked upon his agony. She did not cringe in some unique way as a mother upon hearing the mockery and the insults and the blasphemies hurled against her son by the chief priests and the criminals and by those who simply passed by. One might question the maternal love she had for her child. We would naturally expect all of this grieving and suffering for a son whom she knows is innocent of any crime and innocent of any sin. However, let us avoid and detest the blasphemy of the Romish church that sees in Mary's presence at the cross a unique and mysterious suffering with Christ in his redemption for sinners. Again, I quote from the official Catechism of Rome entitled Catechism of the Catholic Church, page 273, where it says this, This union of the mother with the son in the work of salvation is made manifest from the time of Christ's virginal conception up to his passion. Thus, the Blessed Virgin advanced in her pilgrimage of faith and faithfully persevered in her union with her Son unto the cross. There she stood in keeping with the divine plan, enduring with her only begotten Son the intensity of his suffering, joining herself with his sacrifice in her mother's heart. Here was Mary indeed had a mother's heart in some sense and suffering with her son. But Mary did not enter into some mysterious union with Christ in his redemptive suffering for sinners. No mere human being could suffer with Christ as he suffered the infinite wrath of God for undeserving and guilty sinners chosen from all eternity. The suffering of Christ for sinners was absolutely unique and we diminish that suffering the moment we say that any creature can be said to be in union with Christ in the work of salvation as he suffered for the sins of sinners. For dear ones, although Mary is listed first among the women who were present at the cross, her being the mother of Jesus, giving a special place of honor. Nevertheless, Mary also needed a Savior to deliver her from her sin. Thus, let us look upon Mary as a faithful mother who stood by her sinless son even unto his death. But let us also look upon Mary as a guilty sinner who stood under the shadow of the cross like all of us because she needed a Savior just as the other women who were with her needed a Savior. Here is a picture of a sinful mother whose sin sent 
her son to the cross to purchase her salvation. An amazing, an amazing truth. Even greater than the agony she suffered as a mother, I would submit to you, was the agony she suffered as a sinner, knowing her sin sent her son to that cross to suffer that shame and to suffer that cursed and cruel death. Yes, dear ones, you were there in a figurative sense as Mary beheld the horrors of what her sin deserved in the salvation that Christ so freely purchased for all who will come to him and receive Christ and his righteousness by faith alone. Let us consider finally the Christ who stood with his mother in John 19, verses 26 to 27. Where it says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Having noted how Mary stood with Christ, as he suffered on the cross, let us consider how Christ did not forget the needs of his mother while hanging upon the cross. Not only did he not forget her spiritual needs, but he did not forget her physical needs either. It is likely that by this time, Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, had died. Mary had no husband, most likely to care for her, no husband to provide for her needs. The Lord Jesus, being the oldest of the children of Mary and Joseph, it fell upon Christ to see that she was provided for after his death. And let me say that I do not believe that the Bible teaches that Mary remained perpetually a virgin until the time of her death. Nothing in God's word says this, and in fact, I would submit there are evidences to the contrary. Consider these. There are those who are specifically mentioned as the brothers and sisters of the Lord in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55-56. and Some of the brothers are given particular names even. They are called as brethren and his sisters. They accompany Mary at various times. You see them in in conjunction with with, uh, Mary. Some object by saying that at times the word brother or sister refer to cousins or relatives in general. Now, although this is true, that the word brother or sister can refer to a relative in a general sense, a female or a male relative in a general sense, we must have a very good reason for departing from the ordinary meaning of a word within the context. The context should tell us something, that we cannot apply this word in its ordinary sense. Or something else in the rest of Scripture must 
forbid us from applying that word brother or that word sister in its ordinary sense. But where would we go to find a valid reason within the context or within the scripture itself for not viewing these who are called brothers and sisters as being the actual brothers and sisters of Christ? There is an actual term in Luke 136 that's used with regard to Elizabeth and says that Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. It's a word that, uh, that means a kinswoman, someone who is related to Mary. That word certainly could have been used with regard to the, so the, the, the brothers and, and sisters of uh, Christ if they were not, in fact, brothers and sisters, but simply cousins or relatives in some more general sense. I ask you, why would we apply brothers and sisters in a more general sense if nothing in the context requires to do, to do so? I would submit we wouldn't do so unless we thought the womb of Mary was so consecrated by her carrying the sinless Christ for nine months in it that she could not subsequently carry a sinful child in it. And so the argument runs. Christ having made Mary's womb his home for nine months, that holy womb could not be defiled by having children in it who were infected with the sin of Adam. Again, I ask, where in the mind of God is this revealed in his word? These may be the thoughts of sincere men who desire to maintain the uniqueness of Christ's conception in the womb of Mary, but it becomes the basis for then exalting Mary herself beyond what the scripture teaches. Let me ask you, if sinful children could not live in the same womb of Mary after after the birth of Christ, because clearly she was a virgin, she was a virgin prior to the conception of Christ, during the time of her pregnancy, up until the point that she gave birth to Christ, she was a virgin. The word of God is clear as to that point. But I ask again with regard to this, if sinful children could not live in the same womb of Mary subsequent to Christ's birth because it had been the home of Christ, did every home in which Christ slept and ate during his life become so sanctified that no sinner could sleep and eat in that home? If it had to be so of the maternal home, why was it not necessary for the domestic home? It would seem to the contrary that Christ, although sinless, identified himself time and time and time again with sinners throughout his ministry. He ate with them. He drank with them. He slept in the same home with them. He healed them. He suffered for them. He saved them. Nothing about the life of Christ would lead us to believe that he did not come to be identified with sinners in this life. Sinless though he was, identified with sinners in this life. He was even conceived and born of a sinner. Dear ones, 
Is it not the source of our comfort and encouragement to come to Christ that he who was sinless identified himself with undeserving sinners like you and me in order to save those whom he had loved from all eternity in spite of their sin? In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the reason that we are encouraged to come to Christ is this, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As Jesus himself was purely sanctified and removed from all defilement and sin, but he did not remove himself <clears throat> from being associated with sinners. There is no necessity for him to remove, to be removed from sharing the same womb with sinners. Therefore, if he did not in any other part of his life, even the house of God, the temple, though it was sanctified, had sinners in it. The Lord is encouraging us, dear ones. And I would say, even through the fact that Mary, in having given birth to Jesus Christ, subsequently gave birth to sinful children, Jesus continues from the very, from the very outset to show that He is identified with sinners. He came to save sinners. As Christ looked down from the cross, there he beheld his beloved mother and there he beheld his beloved disciple John, the author of this gospel. John is called here the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the, the title that is, or description that is given to him in John 13.23 in speaking of the disciple whom whom Jesus loved, who leaned against his, his chest as they were lying down at the table, the Last Supper. It was this disciple that leaned against Christ. The love of Jesus for his mother could not be forgotten before his death. He calls out to her, Woman, behold thy son, now, no disrespect is intended by the use of the term woman rather than by the use of the term mother. However, the Lord wants to remind Mary, his mother, that his earthly relationship to her and her earthly relationship to him is about to change. He will no longer be united to her as her child, but only as her Savior. He then passes on to John, the disciple whom he loved, the responsibility of caring for his dear mother. And likewise, Christ says to John, Behold thy mother. But if Christ did have brothers, as we've already alluded to, why did he not deliver Mary into their care? 
I would suggest that Christ viewed covenant ties more important than blood ties in such matters. For the scripture shows us that the brothers of the Lord did not yet believe in him. According to John chapter 7 verse 5. Not until after the resurrection of Christ did any of his brothers come to believe in him. In 1 Corinthians 15.7 it speaks of him revealing himself during the time after his resurrection while he was here upon the earth before his ascension revealing himself to James his brother. In Acts 1.14 before the day of Pentecost we find that it says that there were gathered together the disciples of Christ praying and then it mentions Mary with Christ's brethren all praying together. It appears that by that time the brethren of Christ at least two of them if not more because it's plural that the brethren of Christ had come to acknowledge to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal salvation. But until such a time as those brothers could care for Mary as covenanted believers, Jesus would entrust her care into the hands of a most beloved disciple, John. The Lord Jesus, dear ones, here demonstrates not only that he professed to believe the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, but he also practiced it as well. From his youth, he who was the son of God submitted to sinful parents in obeying them, not obviously obeying them in anything that was unlawful, but nevertheless, Mary and Joseph were sinful. They needed a savior and he submitted himself to them nevertheless. And he showed them the respect that was due unto them as his parents. Joseph as his legal father, not as his natural father. Now we must not love parents, dear ones, more than we love Christ. Nor must we obey parents if it means disobeying Christ. In fact, we truly honor our parents as our parents, as those under whose authority we are and as those under whose authority they are before God when we do not obey them or follow them in what is contrary to the word of God. However, when we must disobey our parents in order to obey the Lord, we do so with grief that we must disobey them. We will honor them even if we do not obey them because giving them honor says to them, you do not have absolute authority. You, just as I am as a child, must submit to the authority of God. So in disobeying our parents, when they ask us to do something unlawful, is actually honoring them and keeping them in that rightful place, that lawful place, under God. When we must disobey our parents because they are leading us astray, telling us to do what is unlawful, 
And we cannot follow them. We do not yell at them. We do not shout at them. We do not scream at them with disrespect. We make it clear to them that we love them, but we must love the Lord more than we love them. Otherwise, they would become gods and idols to us. The fifth commandment calls us as children to provide for our parents in the time of their need, just as we see in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. When our parents are in need, we are as children responsible to care for their needs. When they become disabled or ill or impoverished, we are called to love them and to care for them as we are able, according to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in conclusion, likewise, the fifth commandment calls us who are parents, we who are parents, to provide for our children and for us who are husbands to provide for our wives during this life and at the time of our death as we are able. We do not acquire money as parents or as husbands. We do not acquire money just to have a good time now in the present. We acquire wealth as we are able that we may also provide for our families after our death. However, one might do so, whether by real estate, by savings, by investments, by life insurance, or by, as Jesus did, trusted, covenanted relatives or friends. It is our duty to seek to provide for our loved ones after our death. This truth calls us, dear ones, to be diligent in planning for such things rather than allowing the inevitable to occur at a moment we least expect it. The fifth commandment and the example of our Lord Jesus Christ call us to see that the covenant is thicker than blood. We do not leave our loved ones in our wills to those who do not share the same convictions as we have in regard to the faith. The truth of Christ and the passing on of that truth to the next generation is more important than ties of blood. The Lord Jesus Christ, you recall, said in Mark chapter 3, Verses 31 through 35. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked around about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. <coughs> Dear ones, these are the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters to whom we should leave our children. 
to whom we should entrust our loved ones. Dear ones, as important as are the ties that bind us to our earthly families, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that, tells us that there are ties even stronger that bind us to our spiritual family. Let us therefore love one another and serve one another as those with whom we will stand in their need and at the time of their persecution and not fail them and abandon them. Like those women who stood with Christ, let us not run like the disciples, not hide like the disciples at the time of Christ's suffering. Let us come and be those who stand together, those who are covenanted together by Scripture and by our most solemn oaths and covenants, the solemn league and covenant to, to stand with one another. At what point one who suffers for these truths does undergo persecution, we, on their behalf, undergo the same persecution for the truth. We must see, oh, oh dear ones, the same covenanted tie amongst us. Remember with me, finally, what Christ said in Matthew chapter 25, verses 37 to 40, speaking of that last day when all will stand before him as, as judge. And he does allot the kingdom of heaven to the righteous. The righteous say to him, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison and came unto thee? And this is the conclusion. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Whatever you do to the brethren, Jesus says, you do unto me. Dear ones, we love Christ by loving those who walk in the faith and in the truth of Jesus Christ in standing with them in their time of persecution and suffering and even giving over our loved ones at the time of our death to those who will continue to train, instruct them and love them and lead them in the paths of righteousness and truth so this covenanted reformation may go on unto the next generation. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.